you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 15 of Reclaiming the Faith a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey y'all, thanks so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith, and thank you so much for praying for me and my family. Episode 15 begins an awesome four-part series on genuine historic revivals with my podcasting partner BDK of Omega Frequency. In the first part of this series, we'll be looking at the question, what is revival? And this is such an important subject to nail down from a historical perspective because the word revival means so many different things to so many people. Well, if you're blessed by this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com or email me at email philsbaker at gmail.com. In 2016, I wrote a book called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. And you can find that book on Amazon. And if it's a blessing to you, please leave an honest review there as well. Well, I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I also do a, Q- a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And you can contact BDK and at um, OmegaFrequency.com and you can send in questions for that Q&A show there. And in addition to our own channels, you can find each of our podcasts at the Fourth Watch Radio Network website or on the Fourth Watch Radio podcast. Finally, The early Christian quotes that I generally use can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, and you can purchase your copy for $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. And just a little side note for this this four-part series, I was pretty sick while recording it, so uh, please forgive me uh, for not sounding my best on this. But all right, let's get episode 15 rolling. All right. Well, uh, BDK, welcome to Reclaiming the Faith. This is so awesome for me. It's such a privilege for me to have you on. You've had me on your up your uh, your show so many times, and so man, welcome to Reclaiming the Faith. Dude, how can I say no to the invite? Like you come on my podcast at least a couple times a month, faithfully and regularly. <laughs> <laughs> Like, no, of course I won't come on your, no, yeah, of course I'm on your podcast. We're going to talk about some awesome stuff, so I'm pretty excited tonight, pretty excited. Yeah, man, dude, I've, I've just learned so much from you on on your podcast, Omega Frequency, and I know so many people have as well. Why don't you tell them a little bit about Omega Frequency and, and how to find you there? Well, um, you can find Omega Frequency alongside of Reclaiming the Faith and, uh, Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Um, you can type Fourth Watch Radio Network into your podcast um, uh, 
search engine of choice and you can listen to us on your podcast player of choice. Um, you can always just go to iTunes, type in Omega Frequency and I'm going to pop up and you can go to omegafrequency.com and all the podcast archives are there. We are just a podcast that um, lives to equip the remnant bride of Christ in this prophetic hour to investigate Bible prophecy and where we are in that prophetic timeline and to proclaim the return of Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Amen. And you and I get to do a, a Q&A kind of podcast once a month called Ready With An Answer. And so uh, I just want to encourage anybody that's listening tonight, if you have any questions about what we're talking about, you can either email me or BDK and uh, we'll be sure to, to take those questions and to answer them on uh, Ready With An Answer on Omega Frequency in the Fourth Watch. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, tonight we're talking about genuine historical revivals and what a real revival looks like. So BDK, let's, let's start off with defining our terms. So what is revival? Well, a lot, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And it's kind of like a catchphrase, right? Or, or a catch all. Like, was what happened at the Azusa now, was that a revival? Or was, like, the Brownsville revival of 1995, was that a revival? Or was the Welsh revival of 1904 a revival? Um, when we think of revival, we think about, like, untold millions coming to Christ and great spiritual awakening and all kinds of sinners being converted and our church growing by leaps and bounds and the membership doubling and tripling and long lines to the baptismal fountains and things like that. But there's actually three parts to this process and God's a God of order, right? Mm. God does nothing without a plan. And so like these things kind of come in phases and you can't put one before the other. So if you're going to actively seek to be involved in revival or pray for a revival to happen, you have to start at the beginning and in partnership with God, go through these various stages. So what is revival? Like I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to give you a textbook um, definition. So like I'm taking this definition from the handbook of revivals by Henry C. Fish, and it was published in 1874. And I know I'm going old school on this, but you can get this on Amazon in Kindle format. Um, I don't know how many original 1874 versions there are left, <laughs> if you want it in hardcover. But I've read this thing, and it's amazing because this old school dude uh, pulls no punches, and it, there's some really good theology in it. And um, he puts revival to this definition. He says, words often become broadened in their significance. It is so with the word revive. Strictly speaking, it means to bring again to life or to reanimate. While then we may speak of Christians as being revived, it could not be said of the unregenerate. As they are dead in trespasses and sins, therefore there can be no reviving that which has never lived could not be reanimated. 
The word itself in some forms is often used in scripture, and as so used, it generally implies the reproduction of a spiritual life which had almost died away. Revivals, then, are seasons when Christians are awakened to a more spiritual frame, to more fervent prayer, and to more earnest endeavors to promote the cause of Christ and redemption. I'll check that out. And this, this makes so much theological sense. We know theologically that a person who is not born again, right, is dead in their trespasses and in their sins. The Bible says the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit. Why? Because he's dead, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're a dead man in a coffin, you're not reaching out for a glass of water to drink it, right? And you're not coming alive again unless there's a supernatural act of reviving. Well, we in our sins, until we are saved by a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit via regeneration where he places us into the body of Christ, that saving brings us to life. So revival, in the strictest form of the definition, is only for the saved. Because it's taking something that was once alive— that has fallen into a lukewarm, a backslidden state, or has fallen into a state of prayerlessness or a state of spiritual apathy, and it's returning it to its first love. It's reviving it or requickening it. It's actually a supernatural act of God where the Holy Spirit tangibly, you know, his presence, his fear, his awe, his glory, his um, holiness— Seriously, his holiness, because the Holy Spirit is holy. He shows up and he revives Christians and makes Christians spiritually hungry again to fulfill the Great Commission. So revival is not the unsaved coming into your church. Uh, Revival is not your church growing bigger. It's not more baptisms. It's not a bigger movement. It's not a bigger growth. Revival is happening within a church when the members of the church start to look honestly and do fearless moral inventories of their life and see their sin as God sees their sin. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to move on to our next terms. And to do this, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I know that we're going to follow a format here and is going to center around the four key questions you submitted to me. And I'm going to use three historical revivals throughout the episode as kind of like a touchstone to answer the four questions you gave me. And I'm going to cheat and give everybody the questions ahead of time. Yeah, go if ahead. If that's man. okay with you. And I'm going to cheat and give everybody all the answers right away in one example. And then this one example is going to serve as like a framework for the rest of the conversation. And then we'll start going and breaking down the four questions in detail. Is that cool? Yep. Cool. So the first question you posed to me was, let's talk about a few things that generally precede revival. And the second one was, what are some general signs of true biblical revival? The third one was, what are a few things that can help maintain that type of culture in a body of believers? And the fourth is, 
what are a few things that are sure to quench revival? So first I'm going to lay out an example. I said I was going to use three key um, examples throughout the show, and that's going to be the Welsh revival. It's going to be the layman's prayer revival, and it's going to be the Scottish revival, the Hebrides revival with Duncan Campbell. I'm going to use those three as touchstones to answer these four questions. But first I'm going to lay out an example from a different, more recent revival that will kind of give everybody an answer to the test ahead of time. And this is going to discuss what a revival is and what it isn't. And it's going to talk about the next point, which is what is an awakening and a great awakening. So this is a modern account of a revival that happened at Liberty University and Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia in 1973. Okay. And I'm taking this from the book, 10 Greatest Revivals. All right. Who's that? Maybe, which is a... Do you know? It's a it's a book called Ten Greatest Revivals, uh-huh. and it's written by a couple different authors. And basically, what they do is they catalog these different revivals, and they kind of they don't rank them in order of importance, but they rank them in kind of like order of impact. Yeah. And one of the stories, and this isn't one of the ten, but it's one of the stories that they start with, because one of the authors was a member at Liberty University and the Thomas Road Baptist Church. Okay. And this was kind of like his touchstone into revival. And you can just Amazon search the thing and it'll come up. Sure. Um, but I'm quoting from it. And this is the account of that Liberty University, Thomas Road Baptist Church, uh, a revival. It says the evening prayer meeting had been over for about an hour. So this was after the prayer meeting was over. There was a prayer meeting. Students of Liberty University and the members of the Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, were milling around the front of the sanctuary. It was late, 10.30 on a Wednesday night. So most of the ushers and the pastors had gone home. Suddenly, a lone student rose, walked to the pulpit, weeping, and began to confess his sins. The microphone and the pulpit lights were off, but God was there. That student's passionate repentance captured the attendance of those who were still in the auditorium. Someone began singing. Someone also ran to the piano to play the piano softly as to not interrupt the sacred sound of tears. People began dropping to their knees beside the altar and the front pews. Shortly, another broken person approached the pulpit to confess his sins. Soon there were others. After two hours, frantic phone calls went out to the pastors and the deacons. Revivals hit the church. Church members awakened in the middle of the night, dressed hurriedly, and drove through the dark streets of Lynchburg. All came back to the church building expecting to experience God. No neckties, no Sunday morning dress, just believers eager for a divine touch. Soon the glory of the Lord flooded the church auditorium. People stayed at church from Wednesday night until Saturday morning. All normal activities in their lives and in the church shut down. Classes were canceled. Most of those involved didn't leave for work. Some didn't even eat. When drowsiness couldn't be fought off, students just slept in the pews in the back of the auditorium or even under the pews. No one wanted to leave the sanctuary because when they left the building, they were leaving an almost tangible presence of God. They didn't want to miss anything that God was doing. Like the tide that ebbs and flows, the intensity of the experience came in waves. There were louder times when people were publicly confessing their sins than quieter times of soft weeping and private prayer around the altar. How did the revival end? 
early Saturday morning, one student rose to confess his sins, but he seemed to be bragging about what he had done when he sinned. There was no shame or no brokenness. The Holy Spirit, who knows the heart, instantly departed the meeting. Within an hour, everyone knew the revival was over. They left, went home, went back to their daily activities. Pretty interesting, hey? Mm. Like no one planned it. No one scheduled it. No one brought in special speakers or singers. It just happened Yeah. at a prayer meeting, right? And then when it happened and God unmistakably showed up, these people had a legit encounter with God. And were they rolling around barking? Were they doing anything crazy? No. It's kind of like, you know, what happened when um, the prophet in Isaiah, I think it's 61 maybe, sees the Lord. I think that's what it is, right? He sees the Lord and he's like, he's undone and he's like, take the coal from the altar and put it on my lips because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a people of unclean lips. My sin is ever before me. Purge me, God. You know, like when God shows up and you encounter him, the first thing you encounter in the Holy Spirit is what? What's the first word of his name? Holy. Yeah. Right. And when you, when you catch that, you realize suddenly how unholy you are how undone you are. And people just started confessing their sins. They started getting their lives right with God. Classes shut down, services shut down, like, and it was just them and God. These people who were Christians were being revived. No great awakening happened, no awakening happening. It was just a small Revival it was the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit reviving a certain body of believers. It was producing a quickening inside of them so they could see themselves as God saw them. So there was much repentance. There was a desire for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to change them and renew them. And it kind of, it gets shut down, right? Why? Because the flesh is being promoted. The dude was there trying to steal the spotlight from the Holy Spirit And he was trying to steal the spotlight from God. He was bragging on himself. And when God shows up to do such a unique work, God does not share his glory with man. And we're going to talk about the Walsh revival later. Um, And we're going to see some of this in some of these revival cases. But um, this is the other part of that definition. And here's an example of awakening versus great awakening using the Walsh revival. It started in one church with Evan Roberts, kind of the same thing. God showed up and did a unique work amongst a small body of believers that were revived. The presence and the fear of God moved in that church. And then when that church was revived, the revival and the fear of God moved out into the community outside of the church. And that's when sinners awakened to their need for salvation and conversion. That's an awakening. Okay, so revivals for the for the church is for the saints of God to get them hungry for the presence of God, to make them um, almost rabid in their soul winning and their prayers and their their willingness to evangelize. And that spreads out. It turns into an awakening when what is in the church reaches the community and impacts the community. That's an awakening. And then finally, that revival that started in a church with 17 people which was how many people were in the Evan Roberts uh, Welsh revival. When that fanned out from Wales, Wales, it impacted all of Europe. It impacted America and reached all the way down into Korea by the time it was done. 
that's a great awakening. When, when the, when the, when that which happened among 17 people packs a church, changes the church, reaches out in the community, when it hits the community, that's an awakening where the people then experience the holiness of God and the fear of God in the community and realize that they're unholy and they need to find an answer to get holy. They go to the place where God is moving, which is the church, right? And then when that happens, when that moves out from the community and they start sending out missionaries, they start sending out people that are being touched in this, this revival because you get this like fervency to spread the gospel. It impacts the world then you have a great awakening. Now, the reason that these distinctions are being made right now, like I said before, is God's a God of order, decency. God does everything in order. And when it comes to the subjects, there are really a couple of key misconceptions. The first misconception is revival is chaotic. Revival is not chaotic. Now, it doesn't mean that there can't be people operating in the flesh during a revival, which we'll deal with later. That stuff can be dealt with. But revival is not chaotic. It's formulaic. And I know that's not really, you know, attractive to say, but it kind of is. There's kind of a pattern throughout scripture and there's kind of a pattern throughout history how these things go down. God is concerned first with reviving his church. And then if he can revive a church, he can heal the land. Um, my pastor, Pastor Clendenin, um, used to say all the time, no, no society ever failed until the church failed. And it's really, really true because, you know, and that's not dominionist theology. It's like if the church is alive, it's healthy. If the church is revived, that passion, that zeal to win souls will turn people into soul winners and people that get saved, truly saved in that atmosphere, don't go around willingly sinning, getting drunk, beating their wives, beating their kids, um, engaging in homosexuality. Like these things that we have to put on all these movements to stop and we have to vote out. Like that stuff just kind of goes away on its own. You know what I'm saying? Because sin saved people don't want to act like sinners. And so that's the natural outworking of it. And then the second misconception is that revival is a great awakening. But like I said before, it's not. It's, it's actually three different things. Awakening is actually the fruit of revival. I've seen lots of pastors and churches, and I was a former pastor, a former evangelist. I've seen lots of pastors and churches and even movements try to make that awakening their focus, that, that growth, their focus first, instead of faithfully sowing into the prayer and the repentance that must first precede revival, which happens first. I had to see it with my own two eyes Jezebel came calling like an angel of light My hometown wouldn't listen, maybe it was me that wouldn't hear Once deaf to words of wisdom, but now you've opened up my ears I'm gonna run back home where I came from I won't wait till tomorrow Tomorrow's way too long 
ever be here But I'm the only one to blame I let fantasy and greed steer It drove me near insane Something about the bottom Only one way that you can turn Whatever climbing out involves Is better than this slow burn I'm gonna run back home To where I came from I won't wait till tomorrow Tomorrow's way too 